Welcome, everybody. This is Lawyer Up. I'm here with my law partner, Jack DeRora, and we are talking to attorney John Fitch. John is the attorney that attorneys go to when they need a good attorney. John, um, we're going to talk about a couple of cases that you have specifically, but um, for the jury, for the uh, jury, I was going to say for the jury's benefit, for our listeners' benefit, uh, can you tell us uh, where you uh, uh, concentrate your practice as far as what type of law you do? Yes. Uh, so I've been doing this for a long time, as in decades. Uh, and my work has, for my entire career, been focused uh, in the personal injury field. Uh, very early on in my career, I was on the other side of the fence, by which I mean I represented insurance companies uh, uh, in claims brought by people that were injured or perhaps families that had lost a family member in an accident. And I only did that for a few years. And so the overwhelming majority of the time I spent uh, during the course of my career has been on behalf of people that have been, uh, you know, hurt in accidents. I would say the bulk of that has been <clears throat> motor vehicle accidents, car, truck, motorcycle. But I've also gotten involved in uh, aquatic injuries, uh, construction accidents, uh, you know, things of that nature. In 2008, uh, I was asked to represent a teenager, a 15-year-old, that had been sexually assaulted by her pastor uh, at the church. And uh, since that time, a portion of my work has involved representing uh, women and children that have been the subject of uh, some form of uh, sexual abuse. John, you've been around um, about as long as I have, and can you uh, tell our audience what changes you've seen in the law that uh, seem to me to protect corporations and insurance companies uh, from, um, from uh, people that have uh, been injured and are uh, suing for a remedy? Well, <clears throat> uh, you're referring to the so-called tort reform, uh, reform of our legal system what I refer to as the so-called reform. Uh, there were various attempts made, uh, really, I think, pretty much throughout the course of my career. Starting in the 70s, there was legislation, probably in the 80s, definitely in the 90s. Uh, and that was all uh, pretty much struck down by our Ohio Supreme Court. Uh, in 2005, there was another big push uh, by the insurance industry. The U.S. Chamber of Commerce is pretty heavily involved in this. Um, the giant self-insurers, the tobacco industry, the oil industry, uh, have all been involved in this push for what we what is called uh, tort reform. So, in 2005. Uh, there was another wave of this legislation, strictly on a partisan basis. As I recall, all Republicans voting for it, all Democrats voting against it. Uh, of course, the Republicans have controlled our legislature for many years now in Ohio, and uh, it became law 
and has been in effect uh, since that time. So uh, to me, the subject of tort reform is a, a somewhat of a <clears throat> misnomer in the sense that it's very narrowly targeted. A tort for our listeners is a civil wrong. We have the criminal system and we have the civil system. And in the civil system, generally speaking, the remedy is financial or some sort of monetary compensation. But the point is there's all kinds of torts. For example, a business can be subject to a tort or a civil wrong. But the legislation is very narrowly targeted and limited only to people that are hurt, people that are injured. Um, so in that sense, uh, it's a tremendous benefit to the insurance industry. And of course it restricts uh, the rights, very substantially the rights of people oftentimes who through no fault of their own have their lives uh, upended, uh, can be very seriously harmed and, uh, and have their rights to compensation uh, pretty severely restricted in the state of Ohio. <clears throat> so if I may continue, uh, there, there is in the majority of states, uh, medical malpractice reform limitations. Mm -hmm. uh, probably north of 30 states have that, but it's relatively uh, a relatively few number of states, probably 10 or so, expand that out in a separate form of legislation to apply to all other types of injuries. And Ohio is one of those states. Uh, so if you're involved in a in an auto accident or whatever it may be, you are subject to these limitations. John, tell us about the two cases that um, that you were um, referring to um, that you've tried regarding um, uh, rape victims and the um, the people that you sued in connection with those. Uh, sure. Uh, so. Uh, let me preface uh, that by saying that Ohio has, in my view, one of the most extreme forms of, uh, again, what is called tort reform. In Ohio, there is not even an exception for people who intend to do harm. So that uh, you can engage in intentional criminal misconduct and be the beneficiary of these limitations and, and restrictions. So the first case that I was involved in that I made reference to earlier in 2008, uh, the child's name was Jessica Simpkins. She was 15 years old. Uh, there were two rapes, one vaginal and one oral by her pastor uh, at uh, her church actually occurred in his office at the church. Uh, <clears throat> so he actually pled guilty uh, to two counts of sexual battery. She was a minor, uh, of course, at the time and received a total of eight years in prison. Uh, I was asked to look at the case from the civil perspective 
to determine whether or not, not only he, but the church, and there are actually two churches involved, but not to get too much into the weeds. Uh, I looked at the church and the responsibility of the church. Uh, and through the course of our investigation, we found that there were two prior incidents uh, involving this particular pastor that were of a disturbing uh, sexual nature. The first one involved uh, a young girl somewhere in her early to, to mid-teens who essentially alleged during the course of a, an outing uh, that this pastor was seated behind her and he began to uh, rub her back uh, without her consent or, you know, talking to her, but he had his hands skin on skin and began her shoulders and he slowly worked his way down her back. It was summertime. She had loose fitting clothing on. And eventually she jumped up and she reported to a friend of hers that the pastor tried to stick his hands down her pants. Uh, she got home, she reported that to her mother. Her mother asked for a meeting with the church. Her mother testified at trial that the head pastor of the church said to her, let's keep this quiet to protect our brother. And she was very angry and, and upset about that. And, uh, and that was obvious during the course of the trial, which was many years later. Um, so that was the first incident, putting the church on notice, uh, but the pastor didn't report that either to the authorities or to even the elder board. There was another incident uh, involving another uh, young girl. She was actually 18 at the time, and it was during the course of a counseling session that the pastor said some very disturbing and somewhat bizarre uh, things that were of a sexual nature to include talking about sex with his wife, his sex life with his wife, uh, and saying uh, to her that he could, uh, and he used the F word, uh, he could do that to her right here in the office if he wanted to, uh, but he wasn't going to do that. And a couple of other things that were of this uh, very uh, disturbing nature. She reported it to the acting uh, pastor of the church who testified that he did talk with the pastor and told him that it was inappropriate, but uh, he didn't report it to the elder board. So we had those two prior incidents um, and our allegation against the church was you knew this man uh, had issues, you know, these are obviously things directed towards, uh, young girls, uh, and you didn't take any action. And that was the essence of our case against the church. Uh, now, uh, the church had insurance and it had a pretty substantial insurance policy in play. 
but the lawyer for the church, of course, uh, who was a very uh, experienced and skilled lawyer, uh, pointed out to me that, John, your, your primary element of damage here is the pain and suffering, and that's capped at $250,000. So the bottom line is the church refused to make a substantial offer, certainly not anything near the $250,000 that we were, that my client was capped at. And so we tried the case and the jury awarded 3.5 million in pain and suffering. Now the trial court uh, through a series of motions, eventually reduced that to 250,000 under the law. We challenged that uh, in the in the trial court and the court of appeals. We run successful in the Ohio Supreme Court, uh, which agreed to accept the case. Uh, we were also uh, unsuccessful in a three to two uh, plurality decision. Uh, three female justices voted to uphold the statute and two male justices uh, voted to declare it unconstitutional. So that case was Simpkins versus Delaware Grace Brethren Church. And that in essence is the the first case. Thinking about um, the the law then, uh, John, maybe you can go back and uh, tell our listeners uh, what were the caps on damages and, and Uh, How does that uh, play into um, all of these lawsuits seeking uh, compensation for injuries? Well, it's a it's a little bit uh, complicated in Ohio. Uh, Basically, everybody for their pain and suffering. This intangible element that is part of their damages. Everybody's capped at $250,000. Now it's important for your listeners to understand that out of that comes attorney fees and comes the litigation expenses. Litigation expenses can frequently run uh, tens of thousands of dollars uh, and did in the Simpkins case. So if you're a child and you're raped and you're primary and you're not employed, obviously, uh, or you don't have significant wage loss and typically the medical bills are not that high, um, you're pretty limited in what you can recover even if you're successful. Uh, now, it's a little more complicated than that if you have a large economic loss, meaning medical bills and wage loss, you can actually get up to 350,000 in compensation for the victim's pain and suffering. There are also a few exceptions uh, that get you outside the cap, such as loss of a bodily organ or a substantial and permanent physical deformity, loss of a limb, perhaps a very substantial scar uh, on the face or something of that nature. So in the Simpkins case, we argued to the Supreme Court, actually argued all the way up to the Supreme Court, including the Supreme Court, that the rape of a child is in effect a catastrophic injury, even though it's not a catastrophic 
physical injury as defined in the statute. Uh, but again, the plurality of justices, uh, the opinion was, was authored by uh, Justice uh, French and concurred in by Justice Kennedy and, and Justice uh, Lazinger. Uh, they did not accept our argument, uh, at least as applied to Jessica Simpkins. They did leave the door open uh, and seemed to say uh, that there could be a case out there uh, that may be uh, sufficiently bad enough that we may declare this unconstitutional. Uh, but they did not feel that uh, uh, Jessica's case was, was such a case and they upheld the statute. <clears throat> so that's sort of how the caps uh, applied uh, in Jessica's case and pretty much how they operate generally. John, one of the things that have always bothered me uh, doing this work too is that we go to court because we have a right to a jury trial under our constitution and, and the um, United States constitution. And jurors are told to do what's right, to award full and fair compensation, that they are the uh, arbiter of the facts and then they were, are to apply the, the, the law, but they're not told about these caps, are they? No, it's, a, it's something that's kept secret from the jury. So they're back there deliberating in Jessica's case. And again, they felt the, the damages were obviously uh, horrific, which in my opinion, they were. Uh, but then <clears throat> after they're discharged, motions are filed, were filed by the insurance company and, and the verdict is, is reduced. I've always been disappointed in our courts for, for allowing what I would consider that deception. Were you able to talk to, at any point, the jurors? And, and did you find that any of them were shocked that what they had determined would be fair for your client uh, would ultimately not be awarded? No. In that case, we did not, uh, we did not talk to the jury. I'd like to add one other thing, if I may, so that your listeners can fully uh, understand uh, our system. So for 200 years, uh, we didn't have these types of restrictions in place. Uh, but it was never the law that jurors were free to just do whatever they wanted to do, throw out some ridiculous number, and that would be what we were left with. In other words, the judge always had the power to review the jury's actions and reduce uh, the award if it was determined to be excessive. Now, if uh, the defendant in the case was unhappy with the judge's ruling with respect to that, uh, he or she has the right to appeal to the Court of Appeals, and you get a second layer of review for an excessive verdict. If the defendant is still unhappy, then at least they have the right, it may not be accepted, but they have the right to try to get in the Supreme Court for yet a third layer of review. And that's how our system worked. Uh, for basically 200 years 
until we had the, uh, the so-called tort reform in, in 2005. John, I'd like to approach this from a more personal point of view for just a minute. So you have this opinion from the Supreme Court that does not strike down the tort reform laws unconstitutional. How does your client react? What's the most disappointing part of that whole process for both you and your client? Well, of course, it's it's frustrating to me. Um, this is difficult work to do, but I, I think it's it's necessary work that we do it. It's obviously, uh, you know, it's 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 emotional and it's difficult, even for a lawyer that's been at this for decades. Uh, taking on these cases is, is not easy, uh, but I think it's important work. And part of the reason why it's important is just not money for any individual child or woman. Uh, part of what lawyers uh, who do this work have done is they've uncovered uh, <clears throat> abuse on, on, a, on a larger scale. Typically, these predators, they don't act uh, in only one case. So, for example, if, if we look at the Catholic Church, uh, there's a lawyer named Mitch Garabedian out of Boston uh, who played a very important role in uncovering all that. And in my view, is somewhat of a hero uh, because in shining a light on this, uh, <clears throat> I think played an important part in putting a stop to it. It wasn't the criminal prosecutors that broke that. It was the civil prosecutors. And similarly, <clears throat> the Jeffrey Epstein case, a lawyer out of Florida named Brad Edwards, played a very important role, particularly with respect to those latest charges in New York in uncovering and bringing to light the, the, the scope of the abuse. So what happens when you have a cap of $250,000 and you try to take on these large institutions or a Jeffrey Epstein who has 500 million or a billion dollars and you have a cap of $250,000 out of which you, you pay legal expenses, which could easily run in a very aggressively defended case, $100,000 or more. And out of that, you pay your lawyer and you expect to do something for your client. So this, from, a, from my standpoint, my perspective is the true uh, harm here uh, <clears throat> that's, that's arising out of this legislation. It's very, very difficult to do this work uh, and take on uh, particularly those types of individuals or institutions with these sorts of restrictions. Uh, from Jessica's standpoint, um, you know, I, 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 both her and her father, of course, were, were extremely disappointed. They didn't understand. They thought that we, got, we went through all this. Uh, you know, her case went on for eight years by the time we got to the, to the Supreme Court. 
And as lay people, we have a jury. It's a hard fought battle. The church is denying any responsibility. The church's lawyer actually uh, suggested that uh, in addition to denying liability, that uh, they could award zero to Jessica because she really wasn't harmed all that much. That was my understanding of his argument. And, and, and the jury unanimous, unanimously rejected the idea that the church wasn't responsible. And seven out of the eight jurors awarded her the $3.5 million. So to go through all that and then to have this end result, of course, was, was very disappointing. And she said publicly that in addition, uh, you know, it was, it was very difficult for her to read that Supreme Court decision, which talks about how she went on to, to play basketball. She played basketball in high school and she went on to, to uh, <clears throat> you know, attend college, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, that was, you know, that was very hurtful to her to, to read that opinion. Uh, so. John, somewhat of a long-winded answer, but but that's my response. Well, it was a good response. You know, the older I get, the more cynical I get about the judicial and economic systems. And I, I daily I grow more convinced that they really are designed to protect people at the very top of the economic ladder. And the tort reform law reflects that. Can you respond to that? Well, it's interesting because uh, the business... Again, the major players behind this, the, the giant businesses, the giant insurers, self-insurers, they come in and they may make the argument that somehow this is, this is you know, uh, uh, impacting, this can impact our economy. Uh, there, there's really no scientific uh basis for such an argument, in, in my opinion. Uh, and again, it, it tends to be very political. Uh, but, but what's interesting to me is that, again, with respect to what I call this general tort reform, not the medical malpractice, but applying it to everybody else, uh, even some of our most conservative states reject this. Uh, this, you know, uh, this notion that we have to have this so-called uh, tort reform for, for all of these types of, of other injuries. For example, Texas. I think everybody would agree that Texas is a pretty conservative state. It's well known as a red state. But there's no tort reform of this nature. I'm sure they have medical malpractice reform. But there's no tort reform of this nature in Texas. And I think by all accounts, uh, Texas economy is, is doing pretty damn well. Same thing in Georgia and many other of the so-called conservative states. Uh, so uh, it's, uh, it's something that's highly political, uh, but the arguments uh, bought uh, are not bought by uh, many of, of even the most conservative of legislatures uh, throughout our country.
John, you have a um, another case that you're currently involved with. It's unfortunately very uh, similar, if, if, if not worse. Uh, can you you tell our listeners about that and, and where you are in the um, in the process, uh, you know, the appellate process? I'd be happy to. So you're talking about the Amanda Brandt case. This is out of Cleveland. <clears throat> Amanda Brandt was uh, 11 and 12 years old when she was uh, repeatedly uh, drugged and raped by the father of her best friend. Uh, his name is Roy Pompa. Um, Roy Pompa is, is one, has to be one of Ohio's most notorious sexual predators. Uh, he was videotaping uh, these acts and, it, and it, not only Amanda, but, but several other uh, little girls. Uh, and he was convicted and sentenced to multiple life uh, lifetimes in prison, and he's currently serving uh, his prison, uh, prison sentence in Marion, Ohio. Um, <clears throat> I received a call from Amanda in, in early 2018, and uh, the case was just uh, so, so horrific. Uh, I, I agreed to, to take it. Uh, and so we uh, filed suit uh, against Roy Pompa in uh, Cuyahoga County Common Police Court. Uh, he hired an attorney. Uh, he does have uh, <clears throat> a pension, uh, which he continues to receive, and he hired an attorney to defend the case. Uh, the case was tried. Uh, to a jury there in, in Cuyahoga County. Now, part of her abuse occurred before uh, tort reform took effect. It spanned a, a few years, and part of it occurred after uh, tort reform took effect. So for those abuses, and there were 20 of them that occurred after tort reform took effect, uh, the jury awarded her $20 million, but the lawyer filed a motion under this tort reform to reduce that, and it was reduced to $250,000. So whatever, almost 99% reduction. The trial court cited the earlier case that we've been discussing, Simpkins versus Delaware Grace Brethren Church, felt bound by the Ohio Supreme Court decision uh, and uh, we have appealed that uh, that uh, ruling to the uh, Eighth District Court of Appeals. So, <clears throat> when I spoke earlier about how Ohio has one of the more extreme forms of this <clears throat> so-called tort reform, you see it play out there, and and. Uh, and what has to be uh, one of the most vile acts that a human being can commit upon another, the sexual abuse, the rape of a child, is the beneficiary of these so-called uh, reforms. 
So we once again challenge the constitutionality and the, and the 8th District will have to rule on that. And if we're not successful, then we're going to try to get in the Supreme Court and uh, challenge the statute once again. John, I understand there's an effort in the state house to repeal or at least reform in part this tort law. Tell me about that and tell me who's leading the charge. The charge is being led by Kristen Boggs, who's a state representative. There's been two prior attempts to uh, change the law. The first one was shortly after Jessica's verdict uh, came out in 2013. Uh, it was introduced in the House. Uh, I think it got one hearing, didn't go anywhere. Again, we saw the partisan divide. The Republicans are in control. Uh, and they didn't want to change the statute. Uh, <clears throat> there was a later attempt, as I recall, I believe, uh, introduced by Representative Boggs, similar result. Uh, I believe that was after the Supreme Court decision. Uh, again, uh, with the Republicans in control, they're, they're just not uh, have not been receptive to the idea of change. And then uh, most recently, and uh, <clears throat> just a few months ago, Representative Boggs once again uh, has introduced this legislation. And uh, we'll see whether or not uh, things have changed. Uh, I'm not particularly optimistic. Uh, one has to keep in mind that there's a tremendous amount of money behind uh, this legislation, by which I mean that, <clears throat> you know, big business has a, you know, they have political action committees, and uh, this is, uh, from their perspective, uh, important legislation. And uh, so they, they, they wield pretty, pretty substantial uh, power influence, uh, but we'll have to see. What's uh, interesting now for our listeners is the, um, the, uh, election coming up, if you uh, had this case back in the Ohio Supreme Court, two of the justices, Justice French, who wrote the decision, and Justice Kennedy, who concurred, are both up uh, for, um, for re-election. I have to imagine that you would feel your chances are better if they were defeated, although you know we never know what, uh, what a judge is going to do, whether they're conservative or, or, or liberal ultimately on a decision, but at least with respect to those two justices, we, we kind of know where they fall uh, because they wrote the decision and concurred in it. Uh, is there any effort uh, that uh, you or your client is doing with regard to those elections? Well, uh, it's no secret that um, my uh, client, Jessica, actually both of them uh, were approached by the Democratic Party, and uh, they did uh, speak out, share their feelings with respect, you know, to the law, and the Democratic, the Ohio Democratic Party is um, currently, uh, you know, uh, running ads uh, in support of the opponents of uh, those two uh, justices the opponents being uh, Jennifer Bruner and John O'Donnell. Uh, Jennifer Bruner is a court of appeals judge 
here in Franklin County and Judge O'Donnell is a common police court judge in Cuyahoga County. <clears throat> so, uh, you know, those, uh, that, that ad has been, uh, uh, running now for, for a few weeks. So that the Ohio democratic party has, uh, tried to make an issue of it and on behalf of their candidates and, uh, and the, the, the case in general has, has received, you know, some, some publicity I'm talking about actually both cases, the, you know, the Simpkins case and, and the Brandt case. So, uh, you know, we'll have to see whether or not that has any, uh, impact, uh, you know, in terms of the election, you know, I would like to say that, um, obviously I was, I was disappointed in the decision. I disagree with the decision, but you know, we're lawyers and we have to respect uh, judges, all judges, that's our ethical obligation under the rules, and we have to respect their decisions. Uh, and that includes the decisions in these cases. Uh, so um, we'll have to see how, how things turn out, but, but that's, that's our obligation uh, to all judges uh, under the law. Let's get back to the big picture for a second. And what I mean by that is the effort to perform the tort law. I saw in the paper about a week ago that Representative Bill Seitz, who I think helped draft the law, stated that uh, you know creating carve-outs for certain groups, as you're trying to do, would create a slippery slope. And I think he said, quote, next year they'll have a new definition of worst of the worst. Somebody's got to be able to put the brakes on this. What would you say to Seitz? Well... <clears throat> Representative and Seitz and I, uh, you know, had a discussion about this uh, on uh, WSU radio several months ago. Uh, and he's sort of been uh, leading the charge uh, for many years now. Uh, he's a lawyer out of Cincinnati. It's my understanding that he's part of a group of national legislators that uh, uh, get together and uh, I don't I'm not sure I can fully describe all that they do but but part of their mission seems to be here to try to make these changes uh, in the law and he's been a leader in this uh, without question. Uh, and I guess, uh, you know, the, the, the cases and the results and the facts sort of speak for themselves and the, and the public or your listeners in an event can, can judge for themselves. Really, should we pass a law that protects, financially protects a man who would drug and rape a child? Roy Pompa not only raped these children, he had, he was a trafficker in pornography. He had pornographic videos on his computer of an adult male having sex with a three-year-old. 
and under Representative Seitz's law, his so-called reform, the man who is having sex with a three-year-old would have his financial rights protected under the law. And the jury would be restricted in terms of compensatory uh, damages they could award. Uh, now there is an exception. Uh, again, uh, the, the, the law gets a little uh, complicated. There is an exception for the so-called punitive damages. If you're convicted for a, of a felony, you don't get the benefit of the reforms under punitive damages, which is punishment, but you still get the benefit of compensation. So again, do we need to protect the Jeffrey Epstein's of the world who are having sex with children as apparently as young as 14? That's what Representative Seitz has given to us under Ohio law. And I rest my case. I think the facts and these results speak for themselves. Don, many of our uh, listeners may not know uh, the full extent of your efforts um, because they don't necessarily understand how the process works. But uh, I would guess that your clients, uh, Jessica and Amanda, didn't have the financial means to fund a case against uh, these, uh, you know, uh, the, the business interests and the insurance companies or people with means and that um, many people don't know that it's actually the lawyer that, that funds these cases. And I imagine you had some, uh, some of your own money uh, at risk. And, um, you know, knowing that um, I certainly appreciate the, uh, the work that you're doing. I too feel like we're swimming upstream uh, at times in our state with regard to, to getting people compensated, you know, for very, very serious uh, injuries, but I want to let you know how uh, the great deal of respect I have for your work, and I hope you continue uh, doing it. Well, thank you. I, I appreciate that. Uh, it is um, it is often the case that, that a lawyer will advance, as we call it, expenses on behalf of of our clients, and uh, and I'll just reiterate the point so that hopefully people understand when we have these kind of limitations, 250,000 sounds like a lot of money. But if you're advancing, you know, 40, $50,000 with experts and court reporters and depositions and investigators and on and on and on, that needs to be deducted from the $250,000 in addition, your legal fee. So what is the victim left with? at the end of the day. So it's a very powerful deterrent to accountability. Uh, and that goes back to my earlier point about, you know, the larger picture here uh, being very difficult uh, to, hold, uh, to hold people accountable for, for their actions with, with these kinds of limitations and restrictions. Well, I join John in applauding you for doing what you do, and I can't think of anything much more important in the law than to hold people accountable. So thank you so much for what you do, and thanks for taking time to speak with us today. Happy to do it. Thank you. All right. Be good. Yeah. Hey, you can, you can uh, download our podcast by going to our website, 
lawyer of Columbus by using your favorite podcast app. We'll be back in a few weeks. We're going to have Columbus City Council President Shannon Harden with us to talk about Black Lives Matter and systemic racism. So until then, so long and remember to lawyer up.